to, which he didn't realize, is that uh, for those of you who live in this area, next weekend he's going to be giving a, a weekend retreat uh, on Hazrat and I Khan. So I invite you all to participate in that, and you'll figure out. I'm sure if you go on Shafi's website, you'll find what it is. This is a little too ringing right now. Uh, Sharif. Ah. Friends of the Naid Khan, beloved ones of God. Uh, I had made arrangements to come here to give the seminar I'm going to give next weekend. Uh, my dear friend and brother Shams has been harassing me to do this for about a decade, and I decided it was time to do it. And it was only after I'd made my travel arrangements that I became aware that uh, this meeting was happening in this place and that it would be possible for me to attend a part of it the weekend. So uh, I wrote to Shabda and said, uh, oh, Shabda, is there any way that I could come for just the weekend? I know there's a rule you have to come for the whole thing or nothing. Oh, no. <laughs> so, and, uh, and Shabda said, oh, yes, I, I think we could arrange that, uh, he said kindly. And so I was thrilled to think that I would be able to be with you uh, on this weekend. Then a couple of weeks ago, I got an email from Surawardi saying, uh, the organizing committee would like you to give the closing address. <laughs> and, uh, well, sensing that it would be appropriate for the closing address to be a kind of uh, uh, summing up of all that had happened uh, during the time, I said, but how can I do that since I'm not going to be there? I mean, I know uh, Sufis are famous all over the world for their sense of humor and their well-developed <laughs> sense of the absurd, but... <laughs> This is going a little too far to ask somebody who wasn't there to sum up uh, the, uh, the, the meeting. <laughs> and so uh, I said, well, maybe I could do that, uh, but uh, uh, you'd have to fill me in on everything that happened, uh, Surawardi, Sir I said. And, uh, because I knew that Surawardi uh, is one of the very, very rare people in the world who actually listens when people talk and remembers what they say. And so he, would, he promised that he would do that, and indeed he did start doing that uh, uh, when I arrived, but I quickly saw that summing up is impossible. It couldn't be done. But I, I'd like to tell you that even in this day and a half that I've been here, I am absolutely thrilled at the creativity and beauty of what I would call the blossoming of the message, which is occurring now. I'm just... Uh, astonished and delighted to see that things are going in the direction that they are. And when I came in this morning, I tried to uh, experience what was happening in the consciousness of Vinaya Khan, and I felt him beaming with joy at how things are developing. So I was told that my address would only be half an hour, and uh, I said, well, that, that, will, that will be difficult. Uh, it, it called to mind uh, uh, a, a letter by the great uh, Madame de Stael, uh, the first female public intellectual in modern times, who was famous for writing many, many letters, as people did in those days, and her letters were exceptionally long. They went on for pages and pages and pages. And at the end of one of these letters, uh, 
she wrote, uh, uh, Dear so-and-so, I'm sorry to send you such a long letter, but I didn't have time to write a short one. <laughs> and I feel the same way. Uh, I've been, I was programmed during my 30 years as a professor to speak for exactly one hour and 15 minutes. <laughs> And any, anything less than that, I feel that I haven't even gotten started yet. So I've tried very hard to get my remarks down to half an hour, but uh, I, I, I can't really say that I will succeed. However, fortunately, I've set an alarm clock here, which will tell me when the end is approaching, because I must say I'm very impressed by the way everything has ended on time here. I don't know, I don't know if things have started on time, but they have ended on time. <laughs> Thanks to uh, Shabda, I think. And uh, this is really quite, this is very, very good. Uh, Inayah Khan himself, even though he was from India, and I suppose many of you have been in India and you know that uh, things don't start on time. Uh, in fact, uh, you're lucky if they start on the same day when they're supposed to. <laughs> and therefore, it's really extraordinary that uh, Murshid himself uh, became fanatical about time, about starting on time and ending on time. In fact, once the hall was built across the street from Fazl Manzel, where he gave his lectures during the last two summer schools and held the universal worship and uh, all of those things, he gave instructions to a doorkeeper to shut and lock the door once the address had started so that anyone who arrived late uh, just couldn't even go in. Now, this is very amazing for an Indian, and it means that he saw something in Western culture that he admired so much that he adopted it, despite his own cultural background, and it's a, it's a good thing, I think. I wanted to start by, uh, with a, a couple of uh, Sufi stories. Uh, their relevance may not be immediately apparent, but uh, they are relevant, but uh, uh, Sufis don't explain their stories, and I won't either, so you'll have to figure out the relevance. The first one is this, there was a, a man, a Marid, who uh, went to his doctor and his doctor told him he only had a few months to live. And he was, first of all, very surprised. He had no idea he was that ill. And second of all, very alarmed because he realized uh, that he really didn't have a clue what was going to happen. And so he immediately went to his Murshid and he said, Murshid, Murshid, please tell me, what happens to us after we die? And the Murshid said, how should I know? <laughs> and the Murid said, well, but, but you're a Sufi Murshid, aren't you? And he said, yes, I am a Murshid, but I'm not a dead one. <laughs> the other story is a little bit longer. I'm tempted to interpret the story, but I'm going to resist. <laughs> the other one is a little longer, and uh, it goes like this. It, it concerns the great Abu Sayyid ibn Abul Khair, uh, who uh, at one point in his life, when he was young, was a, a student in a madrasa, very excellent uh, school. You don't have to explain what the word madrasa means anymore <laughs> because of the news, but they weren't like the ones there are now. You didn't learn to operate an AK-47. <laughs> but uh, in any case, uh, he, was a st he was a student there, a very serious student, and he had a very close friend whose name was Sabuni. And the two of them uh, 
spent all their time together, studied together. Uh, they were uh, very, very close friends. And then one day they were given a hadith of the Prophet Muhammad to memorize, a regular feature of their education. And when it came time to recite the hadith, uh, Abul Khair did not show up. And in fact, it turned out that he had disappeared entirely. He said nothing to anyone but just completely disappeared. No one had any idea where he had gone or what had happened to him. And no one heard about him for many, many years after that because, in fact, he was in a cave in the mountains. And then after 40 years in his cave, he descended down into the cities and began to teach and in fact uh, began to, uh, what he would habitually do was go to the, the houses of the wealthy and uh, ask them for a loan. And uh, since it was apparently quite obvious that he was a holy man, uh, they couldn't say no. So he borrowed lots and lots of money from all the rich people and then he put on a huge feast that lasted for three days. It's a sort of standard thing in the Muslim world. Uh, three, three days and nights of feasting and invited everyone to come. And uh, they had a wonderful time, great feast. And then he would pick two or three people from that town and ask them to start a Sufi center. And then he would leave and go on to somewhere else. Uh, eventually, uh, following this lifestyle, he actually became enormously fat and <laughs> had to be accompanied by two people, uh, one on either side, to hold him up so that he was able to, able to walk. But that, that has nothing to do with this story. <laughs> uh, in this way, he became very famous and, in fact, came to be regarded as the greatest Sufi in the world. Well, meanwhile, his friend Sabuni, back in the madrasa, uh, graduated with uh, high honors, became a professor, in the madrasa, wrote many very profound books, and eventually became the head of the school. And he was known then as Khwaja Sabuni. Sabuni heard about his old friend Abul Khair, somewhere distant from where he was, and determined that he was going to go and see him again. And so uh, he did. He made the journey, he found Abul Khair, and they greeted each other with the warmth of old, old friends. But uh, then Sabuni said, Abul Khair, what happened? You suddenly disappeared. Nobody knew where you went. I've stayed there at the school. I wrote all these books. Uh, and, but now you're the most famous Sufi in the world, and I'm just the head of some school. Abul Khair said, do you remember the hadith of the prophet? which we were studying at that time. And Sabuni said, well, yes, I do remember. And he said, could you recite it for me? Sabuni said, well, yes, I think I can. Uh, submission to the will of God means not only accepting whatever is given to you, but giving no thought to anything that you do not have. Abul Khair said, uh, and what did you do with that hadith? And Sabuni said, well, I memorized it, I recited it, I got a very good grade, and then I went on to the next hadith. <laughs> Abul Khair said, I did not do that. As soon as I heard it, I said, 
well, if I'm not supposed to think about anything that I do not have, why am I in this school trying to acquire knowledge that I do not have? And therefore, I left and I went to a cave in the mountains. And from that moment until this one, I have accepted with perfect joy whatever has been given to me, and I have never given one single thought to anything that I do not have. That is the way to progress. By which I think he meant <laughs> not that the only way to progress is not to think about things that you don't have, although that's a very good idea, but the way to progress is if you understand one teaching perfectly, then just follow that completely. And don't worry about all the things that you don't know. You don't need all those spiritual books on your shelves. You don't need any more teachings. You've already had more teachings than anybody could possibly digest. <laughs> you, need, you need one teaching that you really understand and follow completely. Our peer immersion, Khan, once said, how did I rise above narrowness? The edges of my own walls began to hurt my elbows. I would submit to you that that is now the condition of humanity. The elbows are aching. Very, very many people realize that the religious and spiritual traditions that they have been dedicated to are actually too narrow, but they don't know what to do about it. They don't want to leave their tradition behind. They're intensely loyal to it, but they know that it's too small. And so I believe that our job is to make available to them an escape from that narrowness without leaving behind that to which they are loyal. I think that's what the universal worship is about. And this is our responsibility. Well, I want to have a little more background before I say that. Uh, first of all, I'd like to read you a little something out of a wonderful, wonderful book that I hope I hope you all know. Uh, I hope it's still in print. I don't know. Memories of Hazrat Inayah Khan by uh, Memories of a Sufi Sage, Hazrat Inayah Khan by Sirkar von Stolk, who was a, a Dutch man who was very close to Inayah Khan and, uh, in fact, made all the arrangements for everything during the last few years of uh, Mershit's life. Very, very useful man. He traveled a great deal with Mershit, and he has many wonderful stories to tell from those travels, some of the best stories that have come down to us. But it's not exactly a story that I want to uh, uh, read you. Uh, instead, it's an account of uh, when he went to Sweden, to Stockholm, uh, where he visited, among others, uh, Archbishop Söderblom, the, the great figure in the ecumenical Christian movement. And 
asked the archbishop, he said, well, this is, this is wonderful work that you're doing within Christianity, but don't you think it needs to go beyond Christianity? And the bishop said, well, this is our work for now. That will come. So, uh, Merchant was scheduled for three lectures in Stockholm. It was all arranged by a professor in the university there. And uh, of the three lectures, the first one he gave got a very large audience. Several hundred people filled the hall. And Sirkar says that despite this very large audience of several hundred people, Mershit did not go very deeply into his subject. This is unusual. I don't, I, don't, I don't think I've ever worked on a lecture where I could say Mershit didn't go very deeply into his subject. And someday I'll go and see if we have these lectures and see what he meant. But in any case, it was a relatively superficial lecture, according to Sirkar. A few days later, there were only a few hundred present. And then he went much deeper. On the third occasion, only 45 or 50 people came. And then he gave a talk on meditation in which he went so deep that I could not help asking afterwards, why did you not give this wonderful lecture on the first evening, Mershit? Surely then all those hundreds of people would have come back. He replied that on the first two nights, many of the audience had come simply out of curiosity and were in reality unprepared to understand the deeper aspects of life. Those who had returned to listen on the third evening were the ones who had really grasped the meaning of the message and whose souls had responded to the inner courts. Apparently this was something Mershid could perceive in his audience, but you know that he, Mershid experienced life as music. I'm really convinced of this. It's not a metaphor for Mershid. Life is music, and he experienced human beings as music, and he could hear the music that they were making in his audience. Mershit went on, did you think that my work consists of giving lectures? Those lectures are no more than a screen. My real task lies in the higher spheres. If I had to judge the results of all I do from the attendance of this handful of people, I should feel very discouraged indeed. It is true that I can read what the problems and difficulties are of the souls in my audience. And I try to answer those questions. But as for my real purpose, one of the most important tasks I have is to fulfill the tuning of the inner spheres in the different countries I visit to a higher pitch of vibration. That is why I travel so much. So um, 
I gave an address in uh, in uh, uh, Delhi during the Earth uh, celebrations this year. Uh, I was asked to give a topic. I'm always puzzled because, in fact, I don't know what I'm going to talk about until I start talking. And so, how can I give a topic? But anyway, uh, I came up with one, which is, uh, uh, what did Inaya Khan come to do? What was the purpose of his coming to Earth? What was it for? And at that time, I, I, I remembered this passage, and I said that it was tuning. He came to tune the world. And furthermore, he came to train some people as tuners so that the tuning would go on after he had left. And that that's, well, we're, we're the second or third or fourth generation of tuners. The tuning passes on from one to another. We are uh, meant to become master tuners so that we can go everywhere in the world. And we do, don't we? We go everywhere in the world. And we can tune every place that we go. I mean, it seems a little pretentious, actually, when I put it that way. But uh, let's say, according to our capacity, we can tune the places that we go. Some people are great tuners. Some people are apprentice tuners. But all of us have this ability because that's what we're taught. That's, that's, that's our training on the Sufi path is to learn to tune. My thinking has um, evolved a little bit since then because, uh, as you know, in Icon says, uh, uh, in, the, in the area of your spiritual understanding and beliefs, you're either evolving or progressing or else you're going backwards. To stay in the same place is to go backwards. So it always has to be evolving and growing greater. And uh, since that time, I've, I, I, still, I still believe that's true, what I said in February. But I think there's more to it than that. And uh, let me read a passage that I found from Mershid uh, that I think gives the clue as to that further step in understanding. Although the tongue of God is continually speaking through all things. Yet, in order to speak to the deaf ears of many among us, it is necessary for him to speak through the lips of man. He has done this all through the history of man. Every great teacher of the past, having been this guiding spirit living the life of God in human guise. In other words, their human guise has been various coats worn by the same being who only appeared to be different in each. Shiva, Buddha, Rama, Krishna on the one side, Abraham, Moses, Jesus, Muhammad on the other. Those who knew the messenger when they saw him recognized him in whatever form or guise. Those who could only see the coat went astray. To the Sufi, therefore, there is only one teacher 
whatever name he may be given at different periods in history. And he comes constantly to awaken humanity from the slumber of this life of illusion and to guide mankind onward towards divine perfection. As the Sufi progresses in this view, he recognizes his master not only in the holy ones, but in the wise and in the foolish, in the saint and in the sinner. Well, uh, oh my gosh, there's <coughs> my alarm going off. <laughs> and I wouldn't have guessed that we were so close to the end, so it's a good thing I said it. All right, so uh, I just wanted to say that uh, what struck me uh, so profoundly there is this passage uh, that the one teacher comes constantly to awaken the humanity, to awaken humanity from the slumber of this life of illusion. So it's not only to tune, although that's very, very important, but even before that, it is to awaken, to awaken humanity. And the way I would put it now, it will change in a few months, I presume, since things keep changing. But right now, I would say the purpose of Mershit's coming to, was to reawaken humanity to the sense of the sacred. Because that is what is missing from our world. And Mershit always, always, constantly, over and over again, describes the enemies of spirituality as materialism and commercialism. So if you would say, what, what does illusion consist of in our particular time? It's that, materialism and commercialism. We imagine that America is a very materialistic nation, but that's actually a mistake. Uh, Switzerland is a very materialistic nation. That is to say, people really value material objects. And the way you can tell if someone is really a materialist is if they lavish their attention on material objects. It's like they're God. So in Switzerland, they keep everything perfectly. In America, we don't at all. We let things deteriorate and we throw them away. We don't live in a materialist culture. We live in a consumerist culture, and that's commercialism. We are in the grip of the illusion of commercialism. So he came to a... <laughs> he, came, he came to awaken us from this uh, illusion, and the way to awaken us from this is to make humanity once again aware that there is something more important. And that is the sacred, the holy, something of which people barely have any idea nowadays. If you start talking to just regular, ordinary people about their souls, they don't really have an idea what you're talking about. They don't know what it is. They know what their bodies are. They have some idea about what their minds might be, but the soul, what is it? No idea. So 
This was his task, which means that this is our task. To be connected with a great being on this level means to carry on his work. It was not an accident that you ran across Inai Khan, however that happened. There are no accidents. You were chosen to be a part of the carrying on of his work, and that work is to reawaken humanity to the sense of the sacred. We all have one way or another in which we can do that. It's been demonstrated here that every one of the, how many is it now, nine lines descended from Inaikan, or maybe it's more, I don't know, I can't count them all, but however many there are, each, each one has some special way of doing this. And that's why we can celebrate diversity instead of thinking something has gone wrong because we have different organizations. We can say that a different organization allows people to develop a particular strain, a particular way of presenting the message, a particular way of helping to awaken humanity. And the only thing is that we have to realize that we're partners in doing this. And since we have such a huge task in front of us, we certainly can't waste any time thinking about the distinctions and differences between us. What we can do is come together as we have here and find ways of working together to be even more effective in helping Mershit to fulfill his mission on Earth. So um, I think my allotted time is almost up, but I would like to just tell you one story, uh, the story of how I myself became awakened to the sacred in everyday life. Some of you have heard this story before, but uh, many of you haven't. And uh, to me, it's the greatest teaching that I ever received. And uh, oddly enough, it wasn't, uh, I, it's not something I read in Mershit's lectures, or even something that I heard from my teacher. It was something that happened to me. A few years ago, I think it was seven years ago now, I was in Katwijk for the summer school of the Sufi movement. Uh, I'm very kindly invited to come and give lectures there uh, quite often uh, during the summer school. And so on this particular year, I arrived there. When I arrive at the Universelle in Katwijk, uh, I'm always conducted into a little back room of the temple where uh, Piro Mershid Hidayat and his wife Aziza are, and I greet them. Uh, they're very dear old friends. And as always happens every year, uh, Piro Mershid Hidayat said, oh, wouldn't you like to wear a golden robe? And every year I say, oh, no, no, my clothes are fine, uh, you know, and uh, politely decline to wear a golden robe. However, this particular year, for some reason I can't explain, uh, I weakened and said, oh, all right, I'll wear a golden robe. <laughs> so he put the golden robe on me, and we went into the temple, and you know, I, I, would walk, I walk with him, and uh, of course, when he comes into the room, everyone stands up, 
which, uh, you know, makes you feel kind of important. And uh, we went up to the front. Uh, Karim Bosch very kindly introduced me, as he usually does. And I went up. The, the lectern is right next to the altar, if you know that wonderful altar screen uh, of copper. And uh, so I gave, I gave the lecture. I was there in my golden robe. The, the whole temple was full of people who just, uh, well, these people love Murshid so much. And I, I talk about Murshid. I mean, I, I work in the archive. I have things about Murshid they've never heard before, and they're just, they just listen to every word very intently. So here I was in my golden robe giving my lecture, and everyone is staring at me and just taking in every word. And I thought, well, what a glorious moment. Isn't this wonderful? Right? So then, uh, well, after it was over, it, you know, uh, I uh, went back and got my train back to Paris. The next day, I went out for a walk in the Bois de Boulogne, as I often do uh, after, after lunch. It's nearby, and uh, it's, it's something like nature. <laughs> the closest you can come in the middle of a big city. And so I was just walking along, saying a practice, and all of a sudden I heard someone shouting. In the, I looked over, and here was a man running toward me. He was a small black man. He looked actually like an, uh, an Australian Aborigine. Uh, and he, was, he had this big stick in his hand, and he was running toward me, shouting at me in French, uh, saying something like, uh, you made fun of me when I asked you for money for food, which, of course, uh, well, I'd never seen the man before in my life. I had no idea. But anyway, he came running right over and hit me over the head with this big stick. Somebody said, well, you know, why didn't you resist? I, it never crossed my mind, <laughs> I must tell you. <laughs> it should. Fortunately, I was wearing a hat, as I usually do, so it didn't break the skin on my skull, but it was a, it was a heavy blow. And uh, I saw stars and fell to the ground. And uh, then I, I, sort of, I sort of, you know, was dazed. And he came over and hit me twice more, once on the back of the hand, which swelled up. You wouldn't believe how big it got. And another time on, on the side of my belly, which became a wonderful abstract work of art for about <laughs> the next six months, all these different colors and, and, and everything. And... Uh, uh, so finally I got it together at least to say something, and I, I looked at him and I said in, in the best French I could summon, uh, uh, why are you doing this to me? Uh, uh, I didn't do anything to you. This is not right. And he just said, get out of here. So I very uh, slowly got to my feet. I was quite dizzy, but I managed to stand up, and I started walking away from him, and I saw right in front of me, just like that, one of those... Um, Tibetan angry gods, you know, the angry gods. This one was black, like the man, and looked very, very mad at me. And I immediately saw that this man who had hit me over the head was God. And I immediately started to laugh because I thought, this is a really, really good joke, <laughs> right? One day I'm standing in my golden robe in front of the altar. <laughs> the next day I'm lying on the ground being beaten by a madman. <laughs> I saw the karmic connection. <laughs> and anyway, so I, th I, th I think God uh, has a lot of really funny jokes and nobody laughs, unfortunately. But anyway, so I, j I started to laugh. It's a wonder the man didn't come over and hit me a few more times because he probably thought I was laughing at him. But anyway, I, m I made my way down to the 
down to the bus. I put some water on the back. There was a fountain there. I put some water on the back of my hand and went home and, you know, got some medicine, wrapped my hand and so forth, I, chuckling all the way. I mean, I just... Uh, and the next day, uh, I uh, uh, went over across the street to see Pierre Velayat and told him about this incident. And he looked very alarmed. He said, but Sharif, you could have been killed. And I said, well... Uh, Yes, that's true, Pervolite, but I wasn't. And I just think it's very, very funny. And he said, well, I must say, you're taking this much better than I would. <laughs> but the consequence of this experience was that that opened something in my heart. And from that moment on, I became able to see God in every human being. This is a teaching we've all received, something we all believe, but it became my experience instead of my belief at that point. And so I thank God for this wonderful experience. And uh, so I just wanted to convey that to you. My time is now up, and thank you so much for your kind attention. <laughs>